Chapter 19 of Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England by Charles H. Firth. Chapter 19 Cromwell's Colonial Policy. Cromwell was the first English ruler who systematically employed the power of the government to increase and extend the colonial possessions of England. His colonial policy was not a subordinate part of his foreign policy, but an independent scheme of action based on definite principles and persistently pursued. As we have seen, it was his extra-European policy which ultimately determined his part in the great European struggle of his days. All the English colonies had grown up during Cromwell's lifetime. When he was born, England had none. He was seven years old when James I granted a charter to the Virginian Company and married in the year when the Pilgrim Fathers sailed in the Mayflower. It is probable that at one time he thought of emigrating himself, and it is certain that he felt the keenest interest in the Puritan settlers in New England. Ever since 1643, the Protector had been officially connected with the government of the colonies. He was one of the commissioners for the government of the plantations in America and the West Indies, whom Parliament appointed in November 1643, and was reappointed in 1646. But, in spite of their high title, these commissioners had little real power. Their authority might be obeyed in the islands, but on the continent of America it was hardly felt at all. The Civil War tended to loosen the tie which bound the colonies to the mother country. In May 1643, soon after it began, the four colonies of Massachusetts, Plymouth, Connecticut, and New Haven had formed themselves into a confederation under the name of the United Colonies of New England. Strong enough to defend themselves without the aid of the mother country, they were little-minded to submit to her control. When malcontents appealed from the courts of Massachusetts to the Parliament, parliamentary orders in their favour were disregarded, and the appellants were punished. At the same time, however, the New England colonies heartily sympathised with the Parliament in its struggles with the King. These outposts of Puritanism across the Atlantic sent many volunteers to the Puritan armies, more than one of whom did distinguished service and rose to high command. Still more important was the influence which the example and the ideas of New England exercised on the development of democracy and independency in England. At the time when the Commonwealth was established, the political tie between the English government and the New England colonies was little more than nominal, but the intellectual sympathy of the two was never stronger. In the islands and in the southern colonies, exactly the opposite process took place. There the general feeling was hostile to the Puritans and favourable to the king. When the war ended, fugitive royalists flocked to Barbados and Virginia, just as exiled Puritans had once sought refuge in New England. After the death of Charles I, Virginia, under the government of Sir William Barclay, proclaimed Charles II and made it penal to justify his father's execution. Instigated by Lord Willoughby, Barbados refused to acknowledge the Republic, suppressed conventicles, banished roundheads, laid claim to freedom of trade with all nations, and seemed about to declare its independence. 
but the statesmen who had made three kingdoms into one commonwealth by force of arms were not the men to suffer the colonies to shake off their allegiance in the autumn of sixteen fifty one sir george ayscue with a british fleet was sent to reduce barbados and virginia to obedience while at the same time the passing of the navigation act proved that the republicans meant to strengthen not to relax the hold of the motherland on the colonies that act bound the colonies to england by ensuring their commercial dependence upon her and increased the maritime power of england by enriching its shipowners and merchants but it was not simply the result of the jealousy of english against dutch merchants and it was something more than a sign of the rising power of the commercial classes it was the first attempt on the part of england to legislate for the colonies as a whole and to treat them as integral parts of one political system by it the statesmen of the republic declared that england was to be henceforth regarded not simply as a european power but as the centre of a world-wide empire it is often said that the zeal for maritime and colonial dominion which marked the policy of cromwell and of the commonwealth was inspired by elizabethan traditions and to a certain extent it is true but with statesmen and thinkers this zeal for the expansion of england was also the result of a definite political theory a stationary state argued harrington and he expressed the views of his contemporaries was a state doomed to weakness the policy of the republic must aim at increase and not merely at preservation if it was to be lasting it must lay great bases for eternity if it was to be strong it must have room to grow you cannot plant an oak in a flower-pot said harrington she must have earth for her roots and heaven for her branches the imperial purpose which had inspired the colonial policy of the commonwealth found its fullest expression in the actions of the protector when cromwell became protector the sovereignty of the english government was everywhere acknowledged but it could scarcely be said that it had been cordially accepted in the southern colonies there prevailed a strong anti-puritan feeling in new england a growing spirit of independence while in continent and islands alike there was general aversion to the restrictions which the navigation act had imposed on colonial trade under that act the products of a colony could not be imported to england except in english or colonial ships and no foreign ships might import to the colonies anything but the products of their own country from virginia came loud complaints that the law was the ruin of the poor planters in barbados where the dutch had carried on a considerable trade the hostility to the law was still stronger it is strange to see how they generally dote upon the dutch trade wrote winslow in sixteen fifty five undeterred the protector continued to enforce the act by confiscating dutch ships caught trading in prohibited commodities to the islands or the southern colonies though in the new england colonies the non-observance of the act seems to have been tacitly permitted as a compensation to the colonists the growing of tobacco in england where its production was beginning to obtain considerable success was rigidly suppressed and some attempt was made to develop a trade in shipping materials with the northern colonies in the internal affairs of the colonies all their relations with each other cromwell interfered very little he protected the puritan party in the islands and appointed or removed governors he endeavoured to arbitrate on the boundary disputes between maryland and virginia and to settle the internal divisions of the marylanders in new england he sought to mediate between rhode island and the other colonies ordering 
them to give the Rhode Islanders seasonable notice of any wars with the Indians, and to permit them to trade freely. To maintain a loving and friendly correspondence in all things that may contribute to the common advantage and benefit of the whole, was his advice to the New Englanders about their dealings with Rhode Island, and it aptly defines the aims of the protector's own policy towards the colonies in general. Cornerstone of his policy was the maintenance of good relations between New England and the home government. The New Englanders constituted, as it were, the Puritan garrison in America, and there were weighty political reasons for conciliating them. Apart from this, Cromwell's feeling towards them as brethren in the faith was peculiarly warm and warmly reciprocated. In 1651, Massachusetts thanked the Lord General for the tender care and undeserved respect he had on all occasions manifested towards it, and wished him prosperity in his great and godly undertakings. When he became protector, it congratulated him on his being called by the Lord to supreme authority, whereat we rejoice and shall pray for the continuance of your happy government, that under your shadow not only ourselves but all the churches may find rest and peace. Recognising the sensitiveness with which Massachusetts feared any encroachment upon its right of self-government, Cromwell invited, rather than commanded it, to support his policy, and treated its remonstrances against his proposals with respect. Yet he was not jealous of its growing strength, made no attempt to prevent it coining money, and even favoured its extension over the smaller settlements on its northern border. Citizens of Massachusetts and New Englanders in general were freely employed by him, both in Great Britain and in the colonies themselves. The great privileges belonging to New England, wrote a Massachusetts agent, were matter of envy, as of some in other plantations, so of divers in England who trade to those places. But the protector and many of his council were their very cordial friends. When Cromwell died, he was characterized in the diary of a Bostonian as a man of excellent worth and one that sought the good of New England though he seemed to be wanting in a thorough testimony against the blasphemers of our days. As characteristic of Cromwell's policy as his love for New England was his zeal for the extension of England's colonial possessions. When he became protector, the war with the Dutch and the hostile relations existing with France supplied him with an opportunity which he was not slow to seize. At the beginning of the Dutch War, the Long Parliament had called on the New England colonies to attack the Dutch possessions in America, but the New England Confederation was divided and remained inactive. Massachusetts, partly from conscientious objections to attacking neighbours with whom it had no sufficient ground of quarrel, partly, no doubt, from political motives, stubbornly opposed the war. Connecticut, New Haven and Plymouth, whose interests were more directly concerned, were eager to act, but unable to move without the support of their great associate. Confederation seemed threatened with disruption. To some of the colonists, the whole future of New England seemed to depend on the result. Our cure is desperate if the Dutch are not removed, wrote William Hook of New Haven to Cromwell. They lie close upon our frontiers westward, as the French do on the east, interdicting the enlargement of our borders any further that way, so that we and our posterity, now almost prepared to swarm forth plenteously, are confined and straitened, the sea lying before us and a rocky rude desert, unfit for cultivation and destitute of commodity, behind our backs, all convenient places upon the sea coast, being already possessed and planted. Cromwell answered the appeal without a moment's delay. In February 1654, 
he dispatched three ships and a few soldiers to new england with instructions to capture the dutch settlements in the manhattoes and on the hudson the expedition was commanded by major robert sedgwick of massachusetts with whom was associated captain john leverett of the same colony once a captain in the army of the eastern association and to be in future years governor of massachusetts cromwell's letter to the colonial governments told them that he would not inquire why they had not hitherto taken action but he saw no consideration which should prevent any colony from cooperating with the rest in this work which concerned their common welfare when the expedition arrived even massachusetts yielded so far as to permit the levy of five hundred volunteers while the other three colonies were zealous in raising men to extirpate the dutch but before they could march news came of the conclusion of peace with the dutch and the design had to be abandoned june sixteen fifty four on this sedgwick and his fleet according to their instructions made sail for the coast of acadia to take whatever french ships or settlements they could come across old complaints of their aggressions and the state of hostility which existed between france and england in europe were held to justify the attack moreover this deluding crew as leverett called the french settlers had given it out amongst the indians that the english were so and so valiant against the dutch at sea but that one frenchman could beat ten englishmen ashore wherein he adds the lord hath most obviously befalled them for sedgwick with but one hundred and thirty men took first the fort of st john's next port royal now annapolis and finally their strong fort on the penobscot river so the whole territory from the penobscot to the mouth of the st lawrence passed under english dominion and remained in english hands till it was given up by charles the second in sixteen sixty eight after the french and the dutch came the turn of the spaniards there were grievances more than enough to justify hostilities and all the diplomatic representations of the long parliament had failed to procure their redress england and spain had been at peace in europe ever since sixteen thirty but that peace had never been observed in the western hemisphere spain still claimed by virtue of the pope's donation exclusive dominion over islands it left unoccupied and attacked all foreigners who attempted to colonize them in sixteen thirty four the spaniards drove out the english settlers from tortuga in sixteen forty one a fleet from cartagena captured and expelled the english colonists of new providence on the mosquito coast in sixteen fifty one santa cruz was surprised a hundred english inhabitants killed and the rest forced to fly from the island if an english ship sailing to an english colony met a spanish fleet anywhere in western waters it was likely to be attacked and plundered if chance or storm drove an english ship on the coast of cuba or central america the ship was confiscated and the crew set to work as convicts mixed with the desire to exact satisfaction for these injuries were other motives cromwell was bent on conquest for both religious and economic reasons the islands spain held in the west indies were large and thinly populated whilst the islands england possessed were small and filled to overflowing with people hispaniola was fertile a country beyond compare people said its conquest would provide a vent for the surplus population of the english settlements for the unruly highlanders of scotland and for the vagrants and criminals of england added to this every piece of territory won from spain was so much rescued from catholicism and gained for protestantism in august sixteen fifty four therefore cromwell made up his mind to send an expedition to attack the spanish settlements in the west indies general venables who was chosen to command it 
showed scruples about the justice of attacking the Spaniards. He was told that if we had no peace with the Spaniards, then this could be no breach of the peace. If we had peace with them, they had broken it, and then it was but just for the English to seek reparation. Cromwell did not believe that war with Spain in the West Indies would necessarily lead to war with Spain in Europe. There were many precedents, and the practice of the Spaniards themselves to the contrary. The old Elizabethan maxim, no peace beyond the line, seemed still to hold good. Still more powerful was the recollection of the treasures which the Elizabethan sailors had brought home. What if Spain did declare war? It would be easy to intercept the galleons which brought the silver of Peru from Portobello to Havana, and from Havana to Spain. A war with Spain was the most profitable of all wars, and at worst the profits of the captures would defray the cost of the expedition. In December 1654, a fleet of 38 ships, commanded by Admiral Penn, sailed from Portsmouth, bearing General Venables and 2,500 soldiers. With them also went Edward Winslow, once Governor of Plymouth Colony, now one of the commissioners appointed to assist Venables in the conduct of the expedition. As the New England colonies had been called on to contribute to the conquest of the Dutch, so the West Indian islands were expected to cooperate in the enterprise against the Spaniards. Nor were Cromwell's expectations disappointed. At Barbados and elsewhere, Venables enlisted enough men to raise his army to 7,000 men. Some took service in hopes of plunder, expecting to gain mountains of gold. With others, the desire for new lands was the chief incentive. St. Kitts, an island almost worn out by reason of the multitudes that live upon it, furnished 800 men. But, though the army was large, it was of bad material, badly armed, half-drilled, and with very little discipline. The officers knew little of their men, and the old soldiers, drafted from the different regiments in England to form the nucleus of the force, were not enough to leaven the lump. In April, Venables effected a landing on Hispaniola and marched through the woods to attack its capital, San Domingo. The Spaniards had stopped up the wells, and the soldiers who had no water bottles were worn out by thirst and fatigue before they came in sight of the town. Twice they fell into ambuscades and were shamefully repulsed by a handful of Spaniards. In the second defeat, they lost eight colours and four hundred men, while Major General Heen, disdaining to fly, fell pierced by a dozen Spanish lances as he strove to rally his broken regiment. Heavy rains and bad food completed the disorganisation of the troops. Never did my eyes see men more discouraged, wrote Venables, and when a third attempt was proposed, the officers declined to lead their men, but offered to try to take the town without them. Hoping for better fortune elsewhere, Venables embarked his forces and sailed to attack Jamaica. Winslow died on the voyage, saying that the disgrace of the defeat had broken his heart. On May 10, 1655, the army landed at Jamaica, occupied its capital, Santiago de la Vega, without much resistance, and drove the Spaniards to fly to the mountains or to embark for Cuba. But now the troubles of the expedition began again. It was the rainy season, and the army, ill-supplied with provisions, tools, and other necessaries, was decimated by sickness. Hundreds died of fevers and dysentery. Venables himself was so ill that his life was despaired of, and he was reported to be dead. In June, Penn, with the bulk of the fleet, sailed for England, and Venables followed a few days later. Each laid the blame of the failure on the other, and Cromwell, 
knowing how much their mutual quarrels had contributed to it, sent both to the tower. They were soon released, but neither was ever employed again. The protector was deeply mortified by the result of the expedition. The Lord, saith he, hath greatly humbled us, but nevertheless he persisted in his projects. Jamaica, he was told by men who knew it, was a better country than Hispaniola, more fertile, more healthful, better situated either for trade or for war, so he resolved to hold it and to make it the cornerstone of British power in the West Indies. To Major General Fortescue, whom Venables had left in command, Cromwell promised ample supplies and reinforcements. We think, he added, and it is much designed among us to strive with the Spaniard for the mastery of all those seas. Writing to Vice Admiral Goodson, Fortescue's colleague, he reminded him that the war was a war not for dominion only, but for religion. Set up your banners in the name of Christ, for undoubtedly it is his cause, and let the reproach and shame that hath been for your sins and through the misguidance of some lift up your hearts to confidence in the Lord, and for the redemption of his honour from men who attribute their success to their idols, the work of their own hands. The Lord himself hath controversy with your enemies, even with that Roman Babylon of which the Spaniard is the great underproper. In this respect we fight the Lord's battles. The battle was long and hard. At the end of 1655, when Robert Sedgwick, the conqueror of Acadia, arrived at Jamaica, with the first reinforcements, he found Fortescue dying, and the army in as sad and deplorable and distracted a condition as can be thought. The soldiery, many dead, their carcasses lying unburied in the highways and among bushes, many of them that were alive walked about like ghosts or dead men, who, as I walked through the town, lay groaning and crying out, Bread for the Lord's sake. Much of this suffering was due not to hardships or necessity, but to the mismanagement of the commanders and the misconduct of the men. Though they were dying at the rate of a hundred a week, the survivors would do nothing to secure themselves against the climate or to provide for their future subsistence. Dig or plant, they neither can nor will, but do rather starve than work, complained Sedgwick. He termed the soldiers a people so basely unworthy, lazy and idle, as it cannot enter into the heart of any Englishman that such blood should run in the veins of any born in England. The protector looked to New England and the islands to supply him with the planters and farmers whom the new colony needed. Above all, he desired to obtain as its nucleus a body of industrious, God-fearing Puritans, such as New England alone amongst the English colonies seemed able to supply. In 1650, he had asked the New Englanders to help in the recolonization of Ireland, and undeterred by his failure, he now invited them to remove to Jamaica. Our desire is, said he, that this place may be inhabited by people who know the Lord and walk in his fear, that by their light they may enlighten the parts about them, which was the chief end of our undertaking this design. Daniel Gookin of Massachusetts, Cromwell's agent, was commissioned to make large offers to his fellow citizens to induce them to emigrate. Ships were to be furnished for their transportation, they were to be given lands rent-free for seven years, and to be free from all taxes for three they were to be guaranteed as large privileges and rights of self-government as any English city enjoyed. Cromwell felt confident that many would accept the offer, for remembering the early hardships of the settlers, he regarded New England as barren and unhealthy, and thought his new conquest a much better country. He made his offer, he declared, out of love and affection to themselves and the fellow-feeling we have always had of the difficulties and necessities they have been put to contest with, 
ever since they were driven from the land of their nativity into that barren wilderness, for their conscience' sake, which we could not but make manifest at this time, when, as we think, an opportunity is offered for their enlargement and removing them out of a barren country into a land of plenty. They had as clear a call, he told Captain Leverett, to transport themselves from New England to Jamaica in order to their bettering their outward condition as they had had from England to New England. But the New Englanders were more prosperous than Cromwell imagined, and at the worst their climate was more healthful than that to which he invited them to remove. New Haven, threatened just then by an Indian war, was the only colony which seriously considered the proposal, and in the end it answered in the negative. In the reply of Massachusetts, intelligence from Jamaica of the mortality of the English race there was the only definite objection mentioned. Its people thanked the protector for his good intentions with humble and effusive piety, promised him their prayers, and made it quite clear that they meant to stay where they were. Two or three hundred New Englanders accepted the invitation, but that was all. As little feasible was it to people Jamaica from Scotland or Ireland. Cromwell thought of transporting lowland vagrants and turbulent highlanders on a large scale, but was told that any plan for compulsory emigration would set all Scotland in a blaze. There was a scheme discussed of transporting 1,000 Irish boys and as many Irish girls to Jamaica, but it came to nothing. Jamaica was colonised by the surplus population of the other West Indian islands. St. Kitts, Barbados and the Bermudas sent numerous settlers, while the island of Nevis furnished 1,700 with its governor at their head. By degrees the mortality amongst soldiers and colonists diminished, cultivation spread, and a little trade in colonial products sprang up. Under Sedgwick's rule, the work of plantation really began. He died in May 1656, and was succeeded as governor by Major General William Brain, an officer who had been serving in Scotland under Monk, and to whose wisdom the pacification of the Western Highlands was chiefly due. Brain died in September 1657, infinitely lamented, wrote a colonist, being a wise man, and perfectly qualified for the command and design. To him succeeded Colonel Edward Doyley, who governed Jamaica till after the restoration of Charles II. All this time the infant colony was engaged in an active war with the Spaniards, both by sea and land. The fleet lay in wait for the Spanish treasure ships, or attacked the towns on the Spanish main. In 1655 Goodson took Santa Martha, in 1656, Rio de la Haja. Sedgwick was much opposed to these buccaneering raids, thinking them not only unprofitable, but harmful. We are not able, he wrote, to possess any place we attack, and so in no hope thereby to affect our intention in dispensing anything of the true knowledge of God to the inhabitants. To the Indians and blacks, he added, we shall make ourselves appear a cruel, bloody and ruinating people, which will cause them, I fear, to think us worse than the Spaniard. Few shared these conscientious scruples. In 1657, Captain Christopher Mings took Coro and Cumana in Venezuela, bringing home more plunder than ever was brought to Jamaica, and enriching the whole island. And the buccaneering spirit, which produced such demoralizing results in later years, tainted the colony from its birth. On their part, the Spaniards made repeated attempts to reconquer Jamaica. Some still lurked in the forests and mountains, 
and aided by the mulattoes and negroes, cut off small parties of settlers. Spain sent fresh soldiers to Cuba, and expeditions from Santiago or Havana landed more than once on the northern coast of Jamaica. In 1657, Doily killed or took a party of 300. In 1658, he defeated 30 companies of Spanish foot, who had established themselves near Rio Nova, killing 300, taking 100 prisoners, and storming the fort they had built. He sent ten flags as trophies to Cromwell, but the protector was dead ere the news of the victory reached him. So, writes a colonial historian, he never had one syllable of anything that was grateful from the vastest expense and the greatest design that was ever made by the English. Yet, though to Cromwell himself the history of his West Indian expedition must have seemed a dreary record of failure, it was in reality the most fruitful part of his external policy and produced the most abiding results. Through it, the Spaniards were forced to refrain from molesting the English colonies in the West Indies, and England obtained, as he desired, the mastery of those seas. Unlike other parts of his policy, it was not reversed, but maintained at the Restoration. Charles II kept Jamaica, and forced Spain with a high hand to submit to its retention by England. He succeeded in effecting the conquest of Dutch America, which Cromwell had been so eager to undertake. He ceded Acadia to France, but his successors won it back, and won all Canada too. Under him, and under them, the power of the home government was systematically directed to the defence of existing colonies and the foundation of new ones. Thus the colonial policy which Cromwell and the statesmen of the Republic had initiated became the permanent policy of succeeding rulers, and it became so because it represented not the views of a particular party, but the aspirations and the interests of Englishmen in general. End of chapter 19